Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books in History podcast, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Christopher Dinitz, and today we are speaking with David Hossefluck. The book is The Siege of Skodra by Marin Barletti, an Albanian priest of possibly Venetian origin, which Dr. Hossefluck translated, edited, and introduced, supplementing with texts from other Christian and Ottoman sources. The original Latin version came out in 1504, making it a truly borderline case for the New Books in History podcast. But Professor Hossefluck published uh, his uh, English version just a few years back in 2012, exactly 500 years after Barletti's death. David Hossefluck is a professor of intercultural studies, Christianity, European history, philosophy of religion, and Albanian history. He completed his PhD in in history at the University of Tirana and is co-founder and executive director of the Institute of Albanian and Protestant Studies. In 2019, Dr. Hossefluck was voted laureate of the first annual 22nd of November Prize in the Republic of North Macedonia, an award for achievements in the sphere of political, cultural, and social life. In addition to being a historian, or perhaps even more importantly, Dr. Hossefluck is a missionary who has worked with churches and humanitarian projects in the Balkans since 1992. He is a for 30 years, he has lived in Albania with his wife and six children. So congratulations on this book, this scholarship, and uh, three decades of studying this really interesting world. Well, thank you, Christoph. And it's uh, a pleasure to be with you on your, on your podcast. I've listened to a few broadcasts and enjoyed it thoroughly. Thank you. Would you please tell us a bit about this journey and, and your life's work? Uh, yes, it's kind of an unexpected journey. I was... Uh, a senior in college when a pastor called me and asked me if I would be interested in joining a small trip to Albania. That was 1992. He had just been back, visited orphanages there, and the government uh, was in shambles after its long period of communist rule, and they just needed help. So he formed a small organization and was looking for volunteers to live at the orphanage with children and just uh, really love them and uh, help them, teach them, and help the organization to care for their their physical needs. So I went uh, on what we call a short-term missions trip, and that was 1992, so it got a little longer. Um, Over the course (laughs) of time, I began working also with uh, churches. Uh, There were no evangelical, evangelical uh, Protestant uh, believer. And so I began working in leadership of some new churches in Tirana and then up in the northern city of Shkodra. And that's sort of where my connection with this work began because looming over the city is uh, a beautiful ancient fortress uh, called the Fortress of Rozafa, uh, kind of based on the legend of the of the founding of the of the castle or fortress, 
and it looks over you know the Shkodra Lake, which is shared by Montenegro and Albania, and the Buna River and the Kiri River and the Shkodra Valley and the city of Shkodra. And it's just a phenomenal place. It's my favorite place in the world, really, to go. And uh, and then I I discovered um, literally on on a sidewalk as I was learning the Albanian language, I discovered an Albanian copy of this book. And uh, the word for siege is rethimi, um, and the the word for circle is rethi. So they're similar, you know, kind of. For obvious reasons, but I still didn't understand what the word the siege was. I hadn't learned that yet. I was still now I'm fluent in Albanian, but in that time I was I was just learning. And my professor had told me that a good way to learn the Albanian language is he was a private tutor of mine um, teaching me Albanian. He said was to translate Albanian books into English um, or Albanian articles or whatever. Well, I saw the picture of the, you know, the book cover, uh, the cover of a book sometimes sells the book. And I saw the cover and I saw the picture of the castle kind of on the book. And, and I say it was a sidewalk is because that's how books were sold in those days. Just they'd spread books all over the sidewalk um, and, 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 and you sell old, old books. So I got this book and I asked my professor, hey, is this book, um, you know, something that would be good for me to, to translate? And his eyes kind of got wide because these books weren't easy to, to find. Um, it had been uh, translated, this Albanian copy had been translated from Latin in 1961 uh, by Albania's premier uh, Latinist. So he said, yeah, that would be a, a, a significant book, he said, but that would be, you know, that that's going to really exercise your Albanian for sure. So uh, yeah, so over the, the, the course of the next really 15 years on and off, I got into the story and then I learned what amazing events had happened at the city I was now living in. That's kind of how I got into <laughs> this book. And so the translation started as a homework assignment, really, that got deeper and deeper as I understood the magnitude of the work in front of me. That That's really amazing how small things lead to big things. And also at that time, you know, before the digital age, how how fortunate and providential it was to stumble across um, such a, such a work. Um, so maybe tell us a bit about that world, the uh, early modern Mediterranean politics and the position of the Ottoman Empire and its advances. We know so much about Italy and Greece, or at least we think we do, living out here, and yet here's Albania right in between, and we don't know that much. Your average American probably doesn't. And uh, so so give us give us an idea of, of the story. Yes, well, like like many people, I hardly knew where Albania was when I first uh, heard about it. This little little country um, just north of Greece on the Adriatic Sea, and of course, it, it became a nation only in 1912. But as a as a province uh, of the Ottoman Empire, uh, if if, and I'm not an expert on. Um, I'm really, I'm, I'm, I translated the book. I've become a historian of a certain period of time in a certain topic sort of, of a little bit later uh, period. Um, but as I was reading the book, I was discovering and putting the picture, you know, like putting the puzzle pieces together. Well, yeah, that's obvious. 
all you have to do is sort of look at a map to see where um, Constantinople was or Istanbul and, and then where Western Europe is. And right in the context of the conquest of Constantinople, the fall of Constantinople in 1453, and you have this young sultan who is very impressed with his own success and sees himself as the fulfiller of like divine prophecy that, that Constantinople would be conquered. And he's setting his eyes now that he has the, the new Rome under his uh, control. He's setting his eyes on a greater dream of, of having both Romes, the, the old, the, the old Rome too. So the, the desire is to, you know, is to, is to go to the, um, you know, to the Italian peninsula and uh, all the Italian states in, 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 and of course, one of the main rivals is, is Venice, especially on the sea. Um, and that's a very complex uh, relationship of the Venetians and the Ottomans. And I don't even understand it all. All I understand it's very confusing. It seems ambiguous and they seem to go back and forth and trying to play themselves both as a, you know, a strategic trading partner with the Ottoman empire at times and other times as yes, we're standing strong for Liberty against the Ottoman empire. So you have, you have an Ottoman empire that, you know, they, they can't really effectively sail from Constantinople and, and attack the, um, the Italian peninsula without having some intermediate launching stations. And that's why I just, just look at a map. It's just obvious that that Italian or the, I'm sorry, the Albanian and, and Dalmatian coastline are so important, absolutely vital um, to a future campaign on Western Europe, which is what the Western Europeans were beginning to fear once Constantinople fell. And so in 1391, actually, um, the Ottoman Empire had taken the city of Skopje. And almost immediately, one year later, Venice then took control of three of the most important Albanian Adriatic uh, port cities, uh, Duris or Durazzo, Leja, Lissus, um, and, and Škodra, or some called, uh, also called Skutari. And they began sort of having a direct rule with Albanian local Albanian population there as well. Um, but they had kind of control of those, those coastal cities. So um, in, in this, in this context, Albania has always sort of been on the dividing line between um, the Eastern and Western church, um, you know, the Eastern Western empires. And, and that dividing line is kind of fluctuated throughout history um, up and down the, you know, of Albania's coastline. So you had an Albanian local population that was split between Orthodox and Roman Catholic. Um, and then, and then you have, as the Ottomans start moving in, um, you have, um, this beginning of conversions to Islam for practical reasons. And then you have this incredible Albanian figure, uh, called Skanderbeg, who is actually taken, uh, captive 
by the Ottomans in the Dervshime uh, system. Uh, the the Devshirme was a system of, of taking children of Albanian lords um, to sort of uh, ensure the loyalties of those uh, of those vassal uh, vassal leaders. So he was uh, the son. He and his his brothers were taken to Istanbul. They were raised in the Ottoman guard. They became powerful warriors. They eventually became trusted uh, commanders in the Ottoman army. And then Skenderbeg, he he uh, defects. So Barletti also, I mean, so the siege of Shkodra, the book I translated, is Marin Barletti's first work, but it's not his most influential. His most influential work would be his second work, uh, which was written uh, in 1508, first published in 1508, The History of Skanderbeg. Uh, and uh, he, he is presenting, and Barletti is a, is a Catholic priest at the, at the time that he's writing, and he's sort of presenting Skanderbeg as this uh, Moses story of you know, being raised with sort of the enemy of people and then realizes his identity and defects and then fights against, against them. So that's kind of a lot of the, uh, you know, a lot, but yet just a drop in the, uh, a drop in a pond about all of the complexities of the region as the Ottoman empire is at its, you know, it's really beginning to rise and really beginning to threaten Western uh, Western Europe. And by the way, when Shkodra finally falls uh, to the Ottoman Empire, um, the next year is the year that the Ottomans start attacking the Italian peninsula with Otranto in, in, in 1480. So it's a really significant battle. It was so significant that Barletti, Barletti, by the way, was an eyewitness of the events. So his book is written with the passion of an, I, he was a young man actually fighting on, on the walls of the, of the, of the fortress against the Ottoman hordes that were surrounding it with their cannons. So he's writing with, with exceptional passion and probably a lot more credibility than his second work, the history of Skanderbeg, because he was not an eyewitness of those events. Those events happened before the siege of Shkodra. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, there's so many, thank you. There's so many, um, things I've, I'll, uh, let me, let me say a few. One is what I take from what you said is that what's, um, hard to imagine, I think from our modern context is that Venice, which we think of as a city is really an empire, but it's an empire on the water. And so it doesn't have much land. It, it has, um, coastal areas, uh, here and there, but therefore, I think if I'm understanding correctly, Shkodra, you can't lose a single stronghold or fortress uh, because all you have is is the sea, and we we just don't have empires like that. I think we have rich islands like uh, you know Singapore, perhaps, or Hong Kong, or something, but they don't go across the sea and control other people the way early modern 
Venice would have. I think a second point that you raise is this amazing world of Ottoman slavery. That's like nothing else. Because when we think of slavery, we think of this um, dehumanizing drudgery of plantation slavery. And in the Ottoman Empire, yes, it's true, you could go work on a farm or in a gold mine or something really difficult, but you could also become a sailor, um, I'm sorry, a, a soldier or a uh, diplomat. Many of these pashas and beys are um, Christian children that were taken very young into the service of the sultan. Um, mm-hmm. the, the advantage is that they had no loyalties, you know, no, no regional loyalties except for to their, you know, their cohort and, and, their, and their masters. Um, but then this one guy defects, which is 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 just shocking. Um, in in this in the region you're speaking of, I remember once when I was um, a graduate student teaching, um, a grad, a teaching assisting in teaching uh, a European history course, we read the um, Serbian book, the the Bridge on the Drina, which I've been thinking about while I was reading about it, since I don't know that much about the Balkans. But this bridge was built by a uh, a vizier. Who was a you know a, a Serbian boy who became this this pasha, and so many of them were loyal, uh, or 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 who's the kidnapped queen Roxelana, who was a little Ukrainian girl who became empress of the of the empire, but then Skanderbeg defects. I can't think of another case like that. So that's that's a wonderful point. I you could, um, and I lost my third one. But would you would you yes. talk a bit about that amazing? That's just that's that that disconnect between how you would think of you know a twenty a twenty first century American would say slavery, but when you say slavery in the Ottoman context, it's a very different world. Uh, it is a very different world, and um, you know, although I'm not an expert on the Ottoman Empire of the time, I do know that the Ottoman Empire was extremely pragmatic. Um, when we even talk about conversion, it's a very interesting topic because the, the, the Ottomans sort of prided, prided themselves in allowing and being religiously uh, tolerant. So if a certain region was predominantly Orthodox, in fact, people ask me this all the time, like, well, there were many Balkan nations that were part of the Ottoman Empire, but Albania is one of the few that is predominantly Muslim. Uh, Why was that? Well, um, one of the reasons is because the Albanians did not have a a cohesive religion to begin with, being on that dividing line. And so they, they, they were not interested in all of the small details between the Orthodox and the Catholic religion. Does the Holy Spirit emanate from both the father and son or just the father alone? You know, these kind of questions weren't extremely important to them. They were very pragmatic on, on survival. And, and so, um, so the, the Ottomans, if, if there was a strong Orthodox community and the, uh, the patriarch or the Orthodox leader, uh, could be faithful to them, then they would allow it and they would enter into an administrative agreement uh, so that they could better manage all of their lands with fewer uprisings. And this, I think, happened as well in the slavery system where 
the slaves um, were not necessarily treated poorly. I mean, soldier training was rigorous, but not in the sense of um, not in the sense of what we might think of as as slavery um, in the purest sense. So Skanderbeg is getting incredible education, uh, incredible military training, but he's also, you know, obviously he's being, he's being brainwashed. Um, he's being taught one certain, um, perspective on, (laughs) on the world and the Ottoman empire. And that, um, this is something that's not so much of an invasion, but as a liberation of countries, um, this sort of thing. So he, he does, in fact, he, his story is so unique that it becomes the theme of an, of a Russian film uh, called Skanderbeg that wins the, I don't know if it's the Cannes Festival or something back in, oh, the 1950s, if I'm not mistaken. I'm sure the year is wrong on that, exactly the year. But um, this incredible film that has been recently, you know, redubbed into uh, into mod- more modern Albanian and with 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 new instrumentation, because Skanderbeg becomes this. In, in fact, Tirana, the, the capital of Albania, is Tirana, and its central square is called Skanderbeg Square. And there's this equestrian statue of Skanderbeg uh, with his with his sword and his helmet, and he's just an iconic Albanian nationalist figure. And of course, the communists, um, the communist party, and the the regime. Uh, in, in, you know, from 19, you know, 1950 to, to 1990 really rewrote his story, um, almost to a degree that casts doubt on so much of the historicity of Skanderbeg now. And it's a huge debate in Albania, in, in Albania, uh, right now, um, because of his defection from the Ottoman armies for the sake of unifying Albanian clans. Uh, and, and so he is kind of the first unifier and, and uh, sort of the father of the Albanian national cause. So yes, the uniqueness of that is something to be, is something to be noted. Right. And um, we think of the Ottoman empire as something that reached its pinnacle at this time, but um, did not, did got a slightly weaker overtime and finally was extinguished after the first world war. But, uh, imagine being a, a European Christian at this time, you would imagine instead of an inexorable giant coming closer and closer first, as you said, with Constantinople in, uh, 1453 and, um, and then over the next 50 years, it would just win victory after victory. So, the fact that one little town could resist. Yeah, please go on. Yes, yes. Well, yes, that one town could resist. In fact, I I was fascinating as I was translating this. And as I'm translating, you know, I'm running into questions. Well, what is this city? Because its name has been changed, you know, four or five times throughout history. And so I ended up just to translate a phrase, I had to do historical excursions and just try to discover what was going on. And over the course of time, I began reaching out to historians and people who were experts to ask them questions. And I began getting this feedback that was, wow, what is this project you're doing? And it was interesting people of, of significant clout in the academic and historic world, um, you know, historian world, um, 
once, for example, an, an author uh, named uh, Kirsten Downey, she's actually a Pulitzer Prize winner who had, uh, had written, um, he, he, he published author, and she was studying uh, Isabella. She's written a book called Isabella, the Warrior Queen. And she says she had discovered some uh, uh, correspondence in an archive, and it kept talking about Albania. And her book, obviously, you know, Isabella is kind of known for, uh, for her um, very uh, tough measures uh, to weed out any disloyalty. But she's, the author is sort of explaining that she was a kind of a mama bear taking care of her kids because as, as the, the, in the first siege of Shkodra in 1474, she's, a, she's 22 or 23 or 4 or something, and she, she's a young mother. And she's hearing about what the Ottoman Empire is doing to the peoples that they conquer and how they take uh, the women. Um, and here she is, a, a young uh, leader. And, and so she begins to become fixated on what's going on at Shkodra. And she writes about, and so Kirsten Downey writes about this in her book. So she reached out to me. I reached out to, um, Professor David Abulafia, who who was the the chairman of the history department at Cambridge, and you know I, I can I compare it to a, a young uh, soccer player who you know he 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 dreams about scoring the winning goal in the World Cup, and he you know he writes Ronaldo to ask him about <laughs> you know hey uh, here's a video of my you know my recent goal what do you think and and Ronaldo actually writes him back you know like who would expect that so. Uh, Professor Abulafia wrote me back and said, this, this is really a missing link in our understanding of those times. And he actually wrote uh, a fantastic historical overview introduction to the book that, that I translated. So yes, I mean, this was, uh, this, the, this work is, um, when, when I when I got that reply from Abulafia, and then a similar reply from uh, Turkey's probably most renowned scholar at the time, his name was Halil Inaljik, um, and he had he, he's he's passed away recently. But I asked him if he would also review the book because I was not again I, I was not a historian of these times. I don't know the original languages of those times, the pertinent languages. So I was reaching out to these professors to say, I'm writing a lot of historical notes in my translation to help the reader who won't understand just as I wasn't understanding things. But I want you to vet the work because I'm, I'm concerned that I don't want to make mistakes, you know, of a novice. And then it'd be, I'd rather you criticize the work before I publish. And I was just, I was blown away by people of this caliber writing back saying, this is significant work. I'd be happy to read the draft for you. And that's when I knew this, this really needs to be more than a, a simple project for my homework. This, this needs to, to go to publication. Well, I think we should add that after your um, first introduction that you write called The Reader's Orientation, there's Abu Lafia wrote the, the next introduction called Historical Context. And uh, it's a really nice essay right at the beginning of your book. Uh, and one of the things I found, um, I would say funny, but it's sad, is how the Venetians were um so uh ambivalent that one of the uh one of the ambassadors in uh 
would only give verbal praise to Christian victories because he didn't want it to be in writing that the Ottomans might find it. And then, um, you know, uh, and so Venice is a very, very uh, funny player here because um, so many of the squadrons finally after the defeat moved to Venice. And of course, Barletti himself might be Venetian, we think, or it's not clear. Um, but on the other hand, Venice is only one foot in. And I think Isabella of Castile is another such player, right? Because they have so many possessions, the Habsburg, or this is not Habsburg, but their antecedent all over the place. And Castile is looking west and her husband, uh, Ferdinand, is looking east. But they have so many uh, irons in the fire trying to run this um, very you know, nascent Spanish empire. Um, but but this, you know, this city, this fortress is is all in because it has no choice. It's a it's a survival or or don't survive. So um I it's like a, it's like uh they're they're a small creature in a in a big chess game of uh, giants who have so many interests. They they talk a good game but sometimes they help and sometimes they don't. Um does Albania feel that way, you know, after the Cold War II? Is that why it's so relevant? Or is it because no, we actually are a nation and, and not pawns in somebody else's um I kinda lost my question, but <laughs> um that that is that's yeah. uh yeah. Yeah, yeah, I know what I know what you're saying because uh, in fact Abulafia puts it so beautifully um at the end of of his introduction where you know he's talking about the importance of Albania, and of course, it's important today just because of its its position. But um, I, I just read how he 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 kind of ends his um, his historical context by saying it is to modern readers in the West that this new translation is addressed, in the hope that the history of Albania will no longer be seen as marginal and minor, but as the story of a land poised uneasily between two worlds a place that played a role comparable to Rhodes and Otranto in the late 15th century struggle between the Ottomans and the West. And so it, it is, it's, it's position. Um, and, uh, and, and it's sort of, you know, it wants to be a part of the European union and yet it still has ties. Um, you know, 500, it was, you know, nearly 500 years, Albania was, nearly 500 years part of the Ottoman Empire. I mean, I asked people this kind of funny question, you know, what was the capital of Albania uh, 150 years ago? And well, it, it was Istanbul. Um, and and so, you know, Turkey is a natural you know, economic trading partner, and there's obviously a lot of ties that go back there. And yet Albanians are very pro-American and they're looking, they're, they're, they're looking toward the European Union religiously they're a very tolerant people because there is this coexistence of a catholic orthodox a a protestant um islam and then also bektashi religion and and that's another interesting uh what is uh, it what is that well it is a kind of it's it's um often it is kind of lumped in with islam uh, because it's you know called sometimes an Islamic sect, I have found them to be kind of a very syncretistic of faith. And many of the Janissaries, so many of these uh, slaves or these uh, young people brought in in the Devshirma system, they were taught Islam 
but they kind of adhered more to this, um, yeah, this syncretistic faith that was very mystical, kind of a, a mystical Islamic sect, and yet had its own identity as being very much more tolerant to um, to Christianity as it's taught in the Bible. And um, I, I tell you, I've lived in Albania for for twenty five years. I've talked to uh, the head of the um, the Bektashi community. I've read books on Bektashism, and it's still a bit of a of a mystery to me <laughs> to mm-hmm. to understand, just because it's such a mix. Um, but for this reason, um, I think it was easier for a lot of the Christian subjects to accept Bektashism because it it seemed to be a little closer to what they had grown up with. So um, your book is divided into three books. Uh, And Barletti first wrote an introduction explaining everything since the beginning of the world. Then he wrote about the siege of 1474, which was a Christian victory, which is the longest section by far. And only the third book deals with the final siege, which was an Ottoman victory. Uh, Would you tell us a bit about his organization of, of the three books of this volume? Yes. So it's kind of interesting. He begins with this, um, I call it a prefatory note uh, to the Doge of, uh, of Venice, uh, Loredan, uh, because, of course, he's writing in Venice as one of the uh, Albanian exiles um, and the Albanians who had fled to Venice uh, received lots of protections, uh, financial aid. And some time has now passed, and so uh, many people see this as you know his kind of posture of reminding the Doge about how faithful the Albanians have been uh, to them during wartime, how thankful they are. It's it's very um, you know it, it, it's um, very it, it's full of praise for for the Doge and for all that Venice has done for them. And then, as you said, Book One is kind of filled with. Um, you know, the origin of the Turks and um, uh, some of their main leaders, some about uh, the region, uh, some interesting uh, stats and kind of a, a picturesque, a picturesque view of Shkodra. And he's talking, I mean, he's talking about his home, his home city. And you can see that in his writing, the way he just uh, gushes about how, how beautiful uh, the city of, of Shkodra is and the castle. And then book two, yes, does talk about the, the failed uh, Ottoman siege of, of 1474 and then uh, bridges into the new plans that the Sultan makes to attack uh, Shkodra. And in, the, in book two, which is like a big chapter of, uh, we would call them maybe chapters today, but just massive chapters, um, he, he begins to describe what would be five ground assaults uh, where the Ottoman invaders would try to climb up and uh, after, after significant bombardment by, by the cannons, uh, which were brought in by, you know, the metals for these cannons were brought in uh, by camel because you couldn't transport these cannons all through them, through the mountain passes. And in fact, there is a city. In fact, there's a lot of cities. Um, oh, well, what's the name of it? it the, the, the translation is, is Cannon Foundry. Um, 
Topane, uh, uh, I think it's Topane, yeah. I'm not mistaken. But um, they're actually casting the, the cannons there on site, and the descriptions are, you know, they're incredible. Uh, the descriptions of all the different battles, they're very picturesque. And then the final book is where the Sultan, who, the Sultan, you know, Mehmed the Conqueror, and that, that's another point in my reading of this book back in the early 90s, when I realized Mehmed the Conqueror actually came here. He actually led the siege on my castle. I like to call it my castle. You know, <laughs> I love it so much. He, he actually was here. I mean, that, that's just phenomenal that, you know, Constantinople, he leads that personally two years after he becomes the Sultan and two years before he dies, he comes to Shkodra. So um, he, in book three, kind of alters his strategy. They take the some of the smaller surrounding castles of Shkodra who had been supporting the defense of Shkodra and kind of in these uh, uh, guerrilla attacks on the, on the Ottoman camps. And after that happens, they sort of surround and, and they just say, we're going to keep it under siege and try to starve them out. And finally, um, Venice cedes Shkodra in a in a in an agreement, and the Shkodrans are forced to decide: Will we stay? We're, they were being offered to stay as as citizens of Shkodra under Ottoman leadership, and they were promised many many things. But at the end, there's this incredible speech by uh, Florio Yonima, who who basically appeals to all the Shkodrans based on what they had viewed the history of uh, broken promises, uh, people, um, you know, impaled and this sort of thing. Um, He's asking, you know, can we coexist with these barbarians? And, and the language of course is extremely, um, you know, it's, it's the, the the language is extremely adversarial. Yeah. Polemical. (laughs) Absolutely. And in the in the end I, of of the book that I put together, I also included, I think it's five translations of Ottoman chroniclers, and they use the same kind of language in reverse. And I thought that was important to add to the book, um, so that you could get sort of the other side of the story from the invaders' uh, perspective. Yeah, that was. That's brilliant. Uh, there, one of them, his name is Tursun, says that Shkodra stands between the Ottomans in what he calls virgin territory. And then another one of these Ottoman sources, Kivami, describes it on the way to conquer new lands, which um, is is fascinating for somebody who mostly studies early modern Europe, because that's exactly how Europeans will talk about you know, the new world and Mexico and places that they go like, oh, this is all brand new. Let's just take it. And um, you can see the shoe on the other foot. Um, So I love that you introduced those uh, Ottoman sources. It really helps us see that the points where there's agreement must probably be true. Um, But the second second one is is a tactical sort of military history thing that what you have done here is what can only be done with a primary source like this, because we can talk about big ideas and I love to do it. But when to understand how things worked 500 years ago, you need to go back 500 years. And the metallurgy, the the amount of metal carried on camels is something I did not understand, even though I've been writing about um, this this time and working on it for a decade. And I, I mostly work on a little later on Charles V and um, 
uh, how the Ottomans were coming to Vienna in 1529. And I think about how did they get all that stuff up there? Well, now I know they, they, they had foundries on site and that supply train is so long that it's really hard for the Ottomans to sustain these invasions into Europe. But the Europeans didn't quite understand that. So that that's interesting, right? And also, you mentioned earlier Isabella of Castile. When she and Ferdinand finally take Granada in 1492, they also did it with the big guns. So the big guns and how they are moved around really help us understand at the same time as these strongholds, literally strongholds, places which you can't advance unless you take that first. Um, so how... How like it, it's a rock? It's a it's a little Gibraltar. Um, Skodra is even though they could take Constantinople, they can't take this castle, and they can't go on without taking this castle. So that explains why Mehmed himself would come there to supervise. It, it is, and you know, having lived there, as I would read this book, and I knew the ins and outs of that castle because I mean, I I would take my little kids up there and. Um, we, they're, they're, you know, a couple of my kids are adults now and we still like to go up and, you know, go in the little underway passages and still look for cannonballs and, and this sort of thing. But when you look at, there's a, there's a mountain opposite the river, which is uh, called, I think it's uh, St. Mark's mountain, uh, it was called in, the, in those days, Taraboshi now. And that was just the perfect viewing point of the battle. And then just opposite um, sort of north of the of the castle, there was another hill. Actually, it was a hill where Enver Hoxha had one of his special palaces. Enver Hoxha was the, the the dictator of communist Albania, uh, but that was where um, another another point where uh, the Sultan would launch those cannons at the weakest sl- or the or the weakest slope, the slope that 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 was used to actually ascend, because all the other sides of the of the fortress were were, were really too steep. And so these, these, when Barletti is describing these exploding uh, cannons, that, the cannonballs that, that come in, he's, he's describing new things. So this book really gives insight into a host, like uh, weaponry. He, he describes, <laughs> I, I laughed when I first read it, when he, he's describing a gun, he, he, he says, and I'll just read this. He says, in order that posterity may know what guns are and how this name came to us, I will describe, I'll try to describe them. A gun is a kind of weapon similar to a bombard made mostly of iron. It obtained its name Sclopus from the explosive noise it makes when fired. It has a long, narrow barrel and is loaded with a kind of ball made from lead containing power and other combustible substances. It can be lit by one person alone. Get that, you know? <laughs> the shot discharge, discharges from the barrel, flying and spinning and killing. I mean, this is in, like he had to explain it to everybody, like this incredulous thing um, that, he's, that he's writing about. So that all of that is, is absolutely fascinating. Yeah, and, um, and then... The fact that they could take Constantinople with so with so, with with surprising effort half a century or thirty years earlier, um, with really interesting tactics. I think they dragged a giant chain across one of the the waterways yeah, to keep the boats. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And they just got they just got lucky because Constantinople was sort of depopulated at that time. It was kind of it wasn't you know we think of the Byzantine Empire, but by fourteen fifty three it it wasn't as Strong, whereas a little tiny 
I don't want to call it a little tiny, but you know, a very strategically positioned place like this, they couldn't take it. And um, finally, in book three, they they just it it is a siege. They just they just besiege it, and that's how that's how it is. And I find that really helpful. It is, and and you can also see various periods of the of the fortress construction when the Venetians took it. They they realized that they needed to refortify us. Especially that um, that side of the fortress that was easier to ascend, um, and they they kind of made this double gate. It was a trap, and it's so fascinating. You go in, you think you've entered the door um, when there's actually a second door behind it, and then a, and, and once once everyone, all the invading armies, rush in to that first door. They look up in the sky and they're surrounded by, you know, you, all of the, all of the Shkodran residents, you know, pouring the hot boiling tar on top of them and everything, and they can't get into the second door. And of course, there's tiers, um, you know, different tiers of of wall that had to be, um, that had to be, you know, taken, and different walls needed to be um, destroyed when the defenders found that okay, this wall is compromised. They would go through an underground chamber and climb up into the second, uh, this, the, you know, the second walled tier. And, and it's just fascinating when you're there reading the book um, and, and looking and sitting, oh, this is, and that helped me actually translate it um, because I could actually picture exactly what's going on by some of the, the new um, excavations that have been done recently. Is it an archaeological site that, or can we all go in there and search for cannonballs as you did with your, with your kids? Yes. It's un- unbelievably, it, I mean, it's, it's still uh, just accessible as can be, and there's very little restrictions. Um, in fact, when I, when I first went to like, I was you know 23 and I went to the museum and they had these cannonballs, like, all sorts of sizes. And we, and we, we read in the book about 800 pound stone balls where, well, you, they're actually in the castle, in the castle's museum. And, um, I asked, I had seen someone in the city that had a cannonball. And I said, where could I get one of these cannon? Can you get them? And that was a very naive question for a 23 year old, you know, but, and he was like, well, you, which one would you like? Choose one. <laughs> You know, from the museum, so it's it's not quite that open anymore. But um, um, but again, everybody can go up there, and um, and and uh, every once in a while they'll do some excavations on a specific part, and that'll be walled off. Yeah, I feel like uh, like a little kid searching for arrowheads, except for these are cannonballs. <laughs> they weigh they weigh a lot, and um, uh, so rhetorically that works too, because every time Barletti mentions a cannonball, they're getting bigger. And so like, here's a 150 pound and you turn the page and here's a 400 pound. And then you turn the page and here's 800 pound cannonballs that they shot 13 times in one day. Um, so I think the other tool, the other weapon that we see deployed here, in addition to a heavy artillery is words. And he includes speeches by the Sultan, by Ahmed Bey, and then by um, a very interesting Catholic figure, Friar Bartholomew. Uh, and then a sort of kind of a captain, um, Jacob Moneta. Um, are, you think these are real people or you think he used them uh, just for like, I'm going to use this kind of language for this figure? I mean, I guess we can't know, but talk about the, the use of rhetoric uh, in, in war in this, in this account. Yes, I, 
I believe that these people were uh, real figures, uh, real real people. Um, I, um, I I sense that when I, and and I'm I'm actually in the process of preparing his second work, the history of Skanderbeg. Uh, in in English, it, it was actually translated in 1596 into English, but the translation is so hard to understand that I'm just recasting it just a bit. I'm, I don't want to lose the, that original sort of um, Elizabethan style of English. Um, but because anyone who wants to study Skanderbeg, they have to start with this book. That doesn't mean that this book doesn't have its errors or um, that there's a lot of debate on how trustworthy Barletti is in his history of Skanderbeg. I, I get that. Um, I think that the swing has gone too far on discrediting Barletti, though. And that often happens until people reached a balanced, a more balanced position. Um, you see some exaggeration and you assume everything he's saying now is discredited. And I don't think that we should go that far, especially in the Siege of Shkodra. In the Siege of Shkodra, he's an eyewitness. And so... Um, I, I guess it's possible that some of the names he might have invented, uh, but I don't think that's true. I think these are real historical figures. Now, the speeches themselves, obviously, um, he is writing. Uh, he, he's a writer. He's a Catholic priest. He's a religious man. He's writing to a Venetian audience. He's uh, very panegyrical to the, the Venetians, and he is writing literature in addition to history. He's careful, not he's, he's often a careful historian and we'll talk about sources and, we'll, and, and he has actually methods, historical methods that are comparable today in many parts of his books. Uh, whereas, you know, in, in ways that he will um, kind of evaluate how valid a certain fact is, or he'll say, now this is conjecture. We don't know for sure. So I respect Barletti's sort of work as a historian. But in the speeches, yes, these are giving the essence of what was said, and he's rewriting them uh, with an incredible tone. And this Bartholomew um, is, uh, is, is just a, I think Bartholomew is the one who actually knew Skanderbeg or, or was a contemporary of Skanderbeg. And so he references Skanderbeg. And Bartholomew also is motivating the, uh, the, the, the defenders of Shkodra to fight to defend not only their city, but to defend the, the Catholic faith. Um, and and that, that we cannot accept this new religion. We must be the guardians of Christianity. Um, they're fascinating speeches. They're beautifully written. Yeah. And Bartholomew, is, I, th- I think I'm saying it correctly, is the longest by far. Uh, and uh, since Barletti himself is a is a is a Catholic priest, I mean, this is a time when there were you know um, militant orders in Rhodes and Malta and places like that really hanging on for every um, tooth and nail. And we shouldn't be surprised to see uh, clerics at war when uh, Pope Julius is conquering Bologna at this time. And I just always remember him played by Rex Harrison, Agony and the Ecstasy, riding around in his armor. Um, so it's a time when these Catholic priests would. It's not. It's not strange that he's a priest and fighting. Yes, indeed, and um, especially in in defense of the city where he uh, where he grew up, and um, of course, yeah, religion is is a great motivator throughout history and in, in in warfare. Um, you know, indeed, indeed, that's true. And then another 
incredible speech is towards the end. It's Florio, uh, Florio Yonima, who has an, another very lengthy speech uh, that he is saying, um, do what you want to do, but these are the reasons why I am going to Venice. And to, to make sure that the Ottomans would e- even allow them safe passage, the, uh, uh, the, 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 uh, sh- the Shkodran commanders took some of the Ottoman, uh, I don't know if it was just soldiers or some commanders and their soldiers captive kind of as, um, as a, as a guarantee that nothing would happen to the Shkodrans as they were departing, uh, going to, to Venice. Um, Yes. So I, I, I regret we're kind of out of time, but we have a couple minutes. What have we forgotten to talk about, either about this uh, important primary source or where Albania is today or your own reflections after decades of thinking about these subjects? Well, um, there's probably so much more we could talk about, but I would just say that, um, um, yeah, the book is the first book known to be written by an Albanian. And I know that there are some who think that Barletti may not have been Albanian, and there's perhaps some arguments for that. But Marin Barletti is known in Albania as Albania's first author, even though he did not write in Albanian, he wrote in Latin for his audience. Um, We also know that his book became what we might call today an international bestseller because it was translated in many languages and spread to really as the, as the Europeans were becoming more and more concerned about this growing threat that was, well, I mean, it, it, you know, it it was reaching their shores and um, to find groups of people, um, Skanderbeg figures and fighters of Shkodra who had stood resolute against such a threat. I mean, this was incredibly inspiring in a book that really was to be promoted throughout Europe. Um, I would say that, you know, today Albania is in a new, uh, is in a new age. Uh, Any of the, uh, of the nations who kind of came out of um, uh, the the communist era has had their growing pains. I would say that's probably more prominent in Albania because of the extreme isolationism of its communist regime. And um, Albania finds itself in, uh, in many, many struggles, but the Albanian people themselves, I will just give my pitch because I, I, I do love Albania and the people are fantastic people. They are, um, they're incredibly hospitable. And if, if um, people are interested in touring Albania, I would highly advise it. Uh, prices are low. The Adriatic coastline is gorgeous. The castles are amazing. Um, I even went snorkeling around one of the castles in southern Albania, and I saw cannonballs way down at the bottom of, <laughs> at the foot of these castles. So I mean, there's so much to explore and see. It's virgin territory, um, terra incognito for uh, for most uh, for most Europeans and Americans for sure. That's a, a, a... Great invitation. What languages would one have to know to make one's way around Albania as a tourist? English really is is enough. It's a mandatory language now. Many people uh, speak it fluently. Most people speak it a little bit, and you'll be fine with English. 
Perfect. Italian, of course, because it's right across the right across the sea. A lot of people know Italian. Well, fantastic. And thank you for this extremely important and very readable, delightful, exciting book and all of all of your work and for talking with me this morning. I hope we do it again when you publish uh, your your second or Barletti's second book on Scanderbeg. That would be great. Thank you for inviting me today.